Hello, and welcome to the Asta La Visa Baby podcast, a deep dive into U.S. immigration law and its relationship to fictitious characters in television and film. My name is Shai Dayan. I am an immigration attorney with Gibney, Anthony, and Flaherty, and I'm based in Los Angeles, California. And joining me today, as he does for every episode, he's also an immigration attorney. He's also with Gibney, Anthony, and Flaherty, but he's based in New York, and he's currently planning next year's company holiday party to be held at Nakatomi Tower. It's Mr. Roderick Potts. Rod, what is going on? Hello, Shy. How are you? I am so excited about today's episode, and we really have no time to waste. We have a lot to get to. I'm, I, I also I am excited to talk about this movie with you. And yeah, we have a we have a ton to get through. There is so much to discuss. So let me get right to the point. OK, before okay. we get into the movie, I have two extremely important questions for you. Number right. one, number one, is it ever OK for a company to hold its holiday party in the office? And number two, is it ever OK for that holiday party to be held on Christmas Eve? Roderick, what say you? Well, you know, Shai, my hot take on those two questions is a hard no for both, but or maybe a soft no, because I think I would probably qualify them with, you know, I've never worked at a company that has the facilities that Nakatomi does. You know, that area where they hold the party, where they have the waterfalls, the big open space. It was a good area for an office party, yes. But, you know, generally when you're going to throw a big bash like that, I prefer it not to be on campus. And having it on Christmas Eve, I have things to do on Christmas Eve. Family, I have family <coughs> obligations. Many people travel anyway, and they're not even around. So not a great idea. Rod, I am with you on both points. So number one, I think it depends about the facilities for the holiday mm-hmm. park. If an office is like Nakatomi Tower and it has an indoor waterfall and those views and that elaborate, you know, layout, maybe it's okay. I kind of feel like you should take the people out of the office to get them into the holiday spirit. As for number two, look, at the end of the day, I'm a Jewish man. It's not like I have a lot going on Christmas Eve, right? But for real, I like my Christmas Eves to be spent getting ready mentally and physically for my Christmas Day, which is spent in the Jewish tradition in America of getting Chinese food, watching a movie in the movie theater, and watching NBA basketball. And if I have to go to a holiday party on Christmas Eve, how am I going to be able to do those three Jewish American things? Precisely. It gets in the way. Like I said, everyone has some sort of family obligation on Christmas Eve. So I think, you know, I'm glad we're in agreement on that. We're definitely in agreement. And look, Rod, much like the character we're going to be focusing on today, I can talk about things like industrialization and men's fashion all day, but I'm afraid work must intrude. So work must intrude. Just to give everybody a reminder of what it is exactly that we're doing, every episode we focus on a particular movie or television show that features a foreign national character living in the U.S. We are going to do a deep dive into the movie or television show focusing on the specific foreign national character. We are going to use our immigration detective skills to figure out what the character's U.S. visa status may have been, what problems or issue the character may have faced living in the U.S., and we are going to talk about a hypothetical consultation if the character came to us for immigration advice. And very important, we are going to imagine that all characters are living in a 2021 U.S. immigration world. Got the rules, Rod? I got it. Good. That's very important. It's always important for the co-host to be on the same page. 
I always need a reminder every episode because I, as I wake up every morning thinking, why am I here? What am I doing? So, it's for this. It's for this. <laughs> this is why we're here. All right. So today's episode, ladies and gentlemen, we're going to be focusing on the Christmas and action movie masterpiece, Die Hard. Rod, would you please give everybody a reminder of what happens in this all-time classic movie? Sure. So John McClane, who's played by Bruce Willis, is a New York City cop, and he's recently separated from his wife, Holly, and she has moved to Los Angeles with their two young children to take a sort of a big shot job with the Nakatomi Corporation. The movie takes place, Shai, as you pointed out, on Christmas Eve. And, uh, you know, John flies to L.A. He's been invited by Holly to fly out to L.A. to spend some time with her and the kids, whom he hasn't seen for uh, approximately six months. They mentioned that in the in the course of the film. So, you know, John uh, arrives and he's picked up at the airport in a limo by his driver, Argyle, who's a fantastic, memorable character. We'll, we'll talk about him a little bit more later on in the in the film. And he's taken to directly to the party. And he has no plans, it should be said, for what where he's staying or what else he's doing besides going to this party. He has not really planned out this trip very well, but that's neither here nor there. But he's brought directly to the party, to the Nakatomi headquarters, where uh, the party has just uh, has just begun and is uh, is underway. During the party, a group of international but mostly German criminals, led by Hans Gruber, who's a, who's a radical terrorist, memorably played by Alan Rickman, they infiltrate the Nakatomi Tower and they proceed to hold the entire party hostage so that they can break into the company vault and steal six hundred and forty million dollars in negotiable bearer bonds. Unfortunately for Hans and his criminal accomplices, uh, John slips away during the commotion at the beginning and uh, proceeds to just be a thorn in Hans's side throughout the course of the film. You know, he single-handedly confronts and kills a whole bunch of the terrorists. He reaches out and attracts the attention of the LAPD and the FBI, gets them to come to Nakatomi Tower. He causes several major explosions and also memorably engages in a, in a, in a heartfelt walkie-talkie dialogue throughout the film with an LAPD officer, Al Powell, played by Reginald Bell Johnson, of Family Matters fame, and we'll talk a little bit more about him later. But you know, through through John's bravery, his heroics, and his New York City attitude, he ends up thwarting Hans's plot, finally killing Hans uh, at the end of the film by shooting him and then dropping him off of one of the top floors of the Nakatomi Tower, saves all the hostages, and finally reconciles with Holly at the end of the movie as in the last shot of the movie as they ride away in the backseat of the limousine together. Rod, I love this movie. I'm going to admit, I must have seen this movie in my lifetime probably over 100 times, but I haven't seen it from start to finish in a long time. So for the preparation of this podcast, I watched it from start to finish. Man, does this movie hold up. I, I really think it's the greatest action movie ever made. And for me, it's the greatest Christmas movie ever made. So it definitely holds up very well. I mean, I, I, I rewatched it also for this purpose. Again, yeah, I've been watching it essentially my entire life. So, you know, I love it as well. I think one of the reasons why it holds up so well is it became somewhat of a blueprint for action movies moving forward. And so this movie has been extremely influential and we've seen its progeny in, in, in other films since. Definitely agree. And I want to talk a little bit about the company's holiday party. This is probably the best holiday party ever filmed on camera. It has agreed. All the elements of a great company party, sex, drugs, live classical music, hors d'oeuvres, Germans, 
alcohol, a token New York City police officer, a roof deck with a helicopter landing pad, weapons, an indoor waterfall. Am I missing anything? Could there be anything else? I don't know that you could. I don't know there's anything else to pack into this. It is, as you said, it has any, it has everything you want. This is what you want your company holiday party to be like. It not is, for HR, you know, not for HR though. Not for HR. The HR, Nakatomi's HR staff must be horrifically overworked and absolutely miserable. You've got Ellis on the prowl chasing poor Holly McLean or Holly Gennaro, depending on, on where she is and you know, where, where we are in the movie, chasing her around, trying to get her to go out with him. You've got him openly snorting openly. cocaine in front of the CEO of the company, which is just not even in his office. office, not even, yeah, not in, his even in his office, office. in someone else's office. So, yeah, the amount of debauchery happening at this holiday party is, is I think I agree with you completely. It is exactly the level you want in any good company holiday party. Absolutely. What a party. What a party. Just to mention some of the uh, movie's interesting facts. This movie was released on July 15th of 1988. The movie was based on the novel Nothing Lasts Forever. Get this by Roderick Thorpe. Rod, yes. what are the odds that this movie was written by a Roderick, not a very common name, and then years later, it's a podcast being hosted by a Roderick to talk about it? Well, you know, I've known, I've known Roderick Thorpe my entire life, the late Roderick Thorpe, unfortunately. You know, I mean... It, so all Rodericks know each other. All Rodericks know each other. Yeah. yeah, exactly. So, so, but uh, <laughs> yeah, I, I remember as a kid, I'll just say really, really briefly, as a kid watching this movie, when that credit would come up written, you know, written, uh, you know, based on a book written by Roderick Thorpe. It was so great to see my name up there because I, I never see, you know, I would never, it, never get my name. Anyway yeah, I think Roderick. we both have names, Shy, which is, you know, Hebrew, yeah. and Roderick, not very common. So it's very thrilling to see other people with our names. Where was our license plate in the little gift shop? thing? I never, you know, yeah, I, it was so, always so, a very sore point for me. Yeah, for me as well. And this was nice to have this in a movie that I loved as a kid to see that it was written by someone with my name was, was very gratifying. Amazing, amazing. Uh, the Nakatomi Tower is actually Fox Plaza in Century City, Los Angeles. The, in the year of its release, Die Hard grossed $140 million, making it the year's 10th highest grossing film. But it was the highest grossing action film of the year, which is very important to note. And finally, LAPD Cop, played by Reginald Bell Johnson known as Al Powell. He also played similar cop characters in 1984's Ghostbusters and the hit sitcom Family Matters from 1989 to 1997. We have some theories about what's going on with this, and we're going to discuss that a little bit later. All right, so now to get to business, let's get into the, the real, the juicy parts of this podcast. Today, we're going to be talking about the German criminal mastermind known as Hans Gruber, played by Alan Rickman. This is the focus of today's podcast. Rod, tell us everything we need to know about Hans Gruber. So Hans Gruber was born in Germany, and he's a member of a West German radical group called Volksfrei. And uh, he was eventually expelled from the organization due to his overly violent behavior and uh, becoming too extreme for them. He's pretty calm, cool. He's well-organized. He is the beneficiary of a classical education, as he points out at one point during the film. But, you know, highly educated, very intelligent. He speaks impeccable English. He's got a knack for high fashion, boasting that he owns two suits by London designer John Phillips. He's got a very high opinion of himself. You know, for example, when when Holly accuses him of being just a common thief after all of his posturing, Hans quickly snaps back and says, I am an exceptional thief, Mrs. McLean. So he's got a very inflated opinion of himself and and he's he's pretty brutal. He's got no issues 
whatsoever with killing people who, who are in his way. That's a perfect explanation of who Hans Gruber is. He definitely has a high opinion of himself. And to be successful in anything, whether it's the law or whether it's being a criminal, you have to have a high opinion of, our, of yourself. I think you and I have been accused of having very high opinions of ourselves. <laughs> Sometimes we have. And yeah. that's why we have the number one immigration podcast. That's right. That's why. So, okay, Hans Gruber is German. He's in the United States. He's engaging in terrorist and other criminal activities. The man would have needed a visa to get to the U.S. So we got to ask the question, what kind of visa would this man needed to have had? I know for a fact that the U.S. Department of State, they're not really into granting visas to well-known and even lesser-known terrorists. Not something that they do. That is true. This is an interesting uh, character study because unlike previous episodes where our characters had jobs in the U.S. and they had ties to the U.S., this is a character who really doesn't. We have no indication that he has a conventional job in the U.S. We have no right. indication that he's married to a U.S. citizen. Therefore, we have to conclude that Hans, as a German, would have needed a visa to get into the United States. So that's where we're starting from. So the question is, what kind of visa or what kind of visa program would have enabled a Hans Gruber to get into the United States? This is the question everybody wants to know. When I first saw a Die Hard as a kid, I said, what kind of, <laughs> visa, what kind of visa did this man need? 11-year-old me was thinking the same thing. <laughs> exactly, exactly. So we have some ideas here, and we're going to talk the listeners through it. So number one, we're going to talk about something called the Visa Waiver Program. And Rod... I would like you to give everybody some information about what the Visa Waiver Program is. Sure. So the Visa Waiver Program enables most nationals of participating countries to travel to the United States for tourism or business for stays of 90 days or less, less without first needing to obtain a visa. Remember, the general rule is that somebody would have to go and actually apply and get issued a visa by Department of State. This allows them an opportunity to enter the United States without having to do that step. Travelers must have what's known as the Electronic System for Travel Authorization or ESTA approval prior to their travel. ESTA is a web-based system operated by U.S. Customs and Border Protection or CBP to determine the eligibility to, to travel and the eligibility for a visa waiver. A traveler has to apply for ESTA through a Department of Homeland Security website. The application looks for a criminal background or criminal activities such as terrorist activities, drug offenses, fraud, previous visa denials, previous overstays, that sort of thing. If any of these are admitted to or found in an individual's background, then it would very likely lead to a denial of the ESTA application and uh, an inability to enter the United States using the visa waiver program. Essentially, ESTA is a way to keep the undesirables from traveling to the United States, you know, without having to go through the traditional visa application process. We definitely don't want the undesirables coming in. Certainly don't. So, uh, you know, there is, a, like we mentioned, like I mentioned before, there's a list of countries that you must be a national of in order to qualify for the visa program, the visa waiver program. A lot of the European countries are on that visa waiver program list. Germany is one of them. Because we have um, found that Europeans are generally desirables. Generally. 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 Also, just on that note, really quickly, uh, there's a fair amount of French spoken in the film as well between the terrorists. Hans speaks a fair amount of French to some of the terrorists. So for those, if they are indeed French or perhaps Belgian, both of those countries are also on the list. So we can assume that the entire crew potentially would be uh, from visa waiver countries. Once you enter the United States, you're 
eligible to be here for up to 90 days. So what kind of things, like if you're on the visa waiver program, I imagine there are specific types of activities you're allowed to do and specific types of activities that you're not allowed to do. So I think there are two types of activities which you're allowed to do. And, And what are those activities? Correct. Correct. So visa waiver is based essentially on the B visa. And a B visa comes in two flavors. One is uh, chocolate, chocolate and vanilla. <laughs> One is tourist activities and the other are business activities. So, so for, for tourist activities, I think what we're talking about are all the things that you like to do when you come to visit me in L.A. You like to go on the Beverly Hills Celebrity House Tour. You like to go to Madame Tussauds Wax Museum. You're, a real, you're a real big fan of taking selfies of yourself on the Hollywood Walk of Fame. Absolutely. So yeah. all, the, all the things that normal tourists would do. What else would you do in L.A.? Uh, Nothing, nothing. (laughs) And then what what about a business visitor? Like, what can you do if you're a business visitor? So as a business visitor, there are certain limited activities that you can engage in. Remember, usually work requires a specific work-authorized visa, but business visitors can come using a B visa or, in this case, in context that we're discussing visa waiver to do such things as attend work conferences. You can meet with colleagues, you can participate in some professional training, you can go on job interviews, you can negotiate and sign contracts, enter into agreements. You can't engage in what is defined as productive work paid by a US company while you're in the US, but there's a fair number of, of, of limited sort of you know basic business meeting type uh, activities that you can that you can engage in. Very interesting. So, Rod, what I've learned from you is that the visa waiver program basically allows somebody from a specific list of countries to skip the visa application process by going to a consulate or an embassy, and that if you get approved for the visa waiver program, you could come to the U.S. to do tourist activities or do specific business visitor activities. That's essentially it. That's what we have to know. So let's talk about how the visa waiver program might have translated to our boy Hans Gruber. All right, let's apply the facts. Let's do it. So Hans Gruber is German, and we know that Germany is on the list of visa waiver program designated countries. So right off the bat, Hans Gruber is part of one of the countries on the list. So he qualifies. Now, Hans does not appear to have a full-time job in the U.S. So this seems like the visa waiver program might have been one of the most straightforward ways in order for Hans to get into the U.S. Visa waiver program. Agreed. This is the quickest, simplest, easiest way for him and, you know, the rest of the individuals in his in his crew to get in. But the problem here for Hans is that considering the ESTA application and ESTA approval, which you need in order to get approved for the visa waiver program, it must be received prior to traveling to the U.S. I think it's really unlikely that if Hans applied as himself, he would have been approved. And the reason I think that is because Hans is a known German radical and a German criminal. In the movie, the FBI is very well aware of who he is and what his criminal background is. Mm-hmm. So if Hans applied for the visa waiver program as himself, as Hans Gruber, with his Hans Gruber passport, I don't think he would have been approved. Agreed, agreed. E- even if, 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 if Germany has issued him and not revoked his passport for his criminal activities, remember, he, he was too extreme even for the Volksfrei movement, then that passport would have been flagged and he certainly would have been denied his ESTA. Yeah, I don't know what the Volksfrei movement is all about, but it's no seems idea. Like if you're too extreme for a for an organization with that name, then you must be completely off the rocker. Yeah, it, Volksfrei, I think, translates to free people, but I don't know anything beyond that. Right. I mean, freeing people is always a good idea, but sometimes you take it to the extreme. 
That's right. Yeah. So I think that if Hans Gruber was able to make it through on the visa waiver program, we have to seriously take a look at the fact that he might have used a fake identity and a fake passport in order to get approved. In the movie, during one of their beautiful walkie-talkie conversations, John mentions to Officer Al that the terrorists have fake California IDs. And he's seen a lot of phony IDs in these days, and these guys are pro. Mm -hmm. So I think it's conceivable that Hans and his crew they had the resources to come up with the greatest fake passports and fake identities that would have maybe got them in on the visa waiver program. Probably. So we've got visa waiver program. That's one of the ways that Hans could have gotten into the United States, but the catch is, is that it would have had to have been done with a fake identity. Right, which would have given rise to all sorts of its own difficulties, obviously. Right. Another way that Hans Gruber could have gotten into the United States, and this might be the way he got in, is by something called entry without inspection. So just to give everybody a background out there, to lawfully enter the United States, one must apply and present himself or herself in person to an immigration officer at a U.S. port of entry. So the typical example of this is, let's say you come back to the U.S. after some international air travel, right after you spent a weekend of gambling in Monaco, you come back to the United States via you know, air travel, and you, know, you wait in line at the airport, you have your passport inspected and stamped, and that means you've been inspected and admitted into the United States. There are also land borders. I know you love to go to Montreal and partake in all the pleasantries of Montreal. So, you know, when you come back via land, you know, you get inspected by a, an officer on the, on the border and they stamp your passport. So entry without inspection, all that it means is that somebody entered the United States without being inspected by an immigration officer or border officer. It snuck in, essentially. Right. This is what people refer to as illegal entry. Mm-hmm. But the, the real term for it is entry without inspection. Right. So when somebody enters the U.S. without inspection, there can be serious consequences, severe consequences. If found, the individual can be detained, placed into court proceedings, and ordered removed from the U.S., commonly known, known as de deportation. The individual can also be barred from ever applying for legal status in the U.S. again. So my thoughts on the matter are, you know, considering Hans is a criminal, considering he's a well-known criminal, he might have just said, to heck with the visa waiver program, I'm just going to bypass the whole visa program, visa waiver program. I'm going to simply use my international terrorist connections, and I'm going to somehow find myself illegally in the United States by sneaking across the border. What do you think about that? It sounds to me a lot of trouble to go through, considering how meticulous their plan is in the film. Mm. But given his high-profile stature as an international terrorist, his options are very limited. So you know, I, I would neither one is good, but I, I would tend to think that coming in under visa waiver with false documents is likely the better of the two options, even though the likelihood of success with a fake passport, probably very low anyway. But, you know, I think that that probably makes more sense than entry without an inspection. Right. I mean, I think this is the first episode where it's not, you know, in previous episodes, we've had a, a clear take on how the person came to the United States. I think in this episode, I agree with you. I think the visa waiver program via fraud was probably the way that he got in. But entry without inspection is also a way he could have gotten in. So Hans Gruber, lots of resources, smart guy. He can find illegal ways to get into the United States. We're not oh, sure. It. We don't think it's a good thing that he did this, but we're just putting things together 
two plus two equals four. Hans Gruber, probably visa waiver program due to a fake passport. Quite possibly, yeah, probably. Quite possibly. So I think we've we've solved you know the first part of our, our problem here. And now, Rod, just to give everybody a break from the technicalities of immigration law, I thought it would be fun to talk about what I like to call the Reginald Vell Johnson theory. Would you like to hear the Reginald Vell Johnson theory? Shy, I am all ears. I am very curious about this theory. Okay, so again, Reginald Vell Johnson, he plays Detective Al Powell in this movie, who is, you know, John's eyes and ears outside of Nakatomi Tower. So here's my theory, and you're going to have to follow closely, okay? All right. Ghostbusters, Die Hard, and Family Matters all take place in the same fictitious world. Boom. I've just blown your mind. All right. I'm with, I'm with you so far. Hear me out. Hear me out. In, <laughs> in, in 1984... Vell Johnson has a brief cameo in the hit movie Ghostbusters, where he plays a New York City jail guard cop. While his name is not mentioned in the movie, according to expanded Ghostbuster canon, which is important to all the nerds out there, mm. this cop's name is Tim Carlson. All right. Okay. Okay. <laughs> then, then, four years later, 1988, Vell Johnson plays LAPD officer Al Powell in Die Hard. We find out in the movie that Al Powell previously mistakenly shot a kid and because of that is currently at a desk job. In Die Hard, he is John McClane's emotional support on the outside. He shows a real ability to provide familial type support to John. You would agree to that, no? Sure, yeah. Okay. Then, one year later, it's 1989, and Reginald Vell Johnson plays his famed role of Chicago police officer Carl Winslow on Family Matters. That's where he was doing comedic battle with the annoying child neighbor Steve Urkel while raising his own family. And Tim Carlson, Carl Winslow. Starting, a, you're starting to get the idea uh, here? Okay. Some of these pieces are starting to fall into place, Shy. Okay, okay. And when he plays Carl Winslow in Family Matters, he has a lot of wisdom. He's very supportive. He's got a lot of emotional depth. He's kind of similar to the emotional guy that we saw him play in Die Hard. Mm -hmm. All right, so here's the rationale. I'm going to bring it all together. Okay. In New York City, Tim Carlson, he's a young cop. He mistakenly shoots a kid. He's demoted to jail guard. He's fed up and disillusioned with life in New York City, especially since Gozer the Gozarian almost brought the apocalypse to New York, right? So he moves to Los Angeles to start over. He changes his name to Al Powell. After the trauma of Nakatomi Tower, where he had to, you know, stop a terrorist incident from happening, mm -hmm. he decides, you know what, I've done New York, I've done Los Angeles, let's go to the middle of the country, and he goes to Chicago. This time, he changes his name to Carl Winslow, which is a little bit closer to Tim Carlson. Right. And that's the theory. It's the same person in all three movies. Rod, what do you think about my theory? So I'm pretty intrigued by this. I'm going to have to ruminate on this, I think, for, for several months. But uh, there's, a, there's a lot to digest here. Off the top of my head, though, I think so. You know, Die Hard obviously has a number of sequels, right? Mm. And Die Hard 2, which takes place one year later, has only one very brief scene with Al Powell. It does. Where he helps out John McClane. Just he faxes him some documents, I think. And that's the and, and very briefly in it. So and then I, as far as I know, he's not mentioned again in the series. That's it. So so indeed, he doesn't seem to be part of in this. If all these movies are connected in the same universe, he does not seem to 
continue on as Al Powell, at least through the diehard lens of this universe that you discuss. So and I think uh, it's I think it's because he's in Chicago as Carl Winslow. He's doing battle with Steve Urkel and John McClane can't find him anymore. He's changed his identity. I think the evidence does support this theory, at least to a certain extent, Shine. Bulletproof. It's a bulletproof theory. I want I you like to think it. about it. Maybe a few episodes from now, we'll revisit it. I like it. Oh, yeah, perhaps we can. Yeah. Cool. I like it. Great. I'm glad that you're on board with the uh, Reginald Vell Johnson theory. And everyone out there, I'm going to copyright this theory. I don't want to see this theory on Reddit. <laughs> All right. So let's get back to immigration. That was fun. Let's do a hypothetical consultation with Hans Gruber, the best dressed, the best spoken terrorist in, in the world. Sure. This would be a consultation. I'd be very I, knowing I'd be very excited to sit down and have a conversation with Hans Gruber. I'd be a little scared, but also I, very excited. Intimidated. Yeah. If we met him in public. Yeah, in public. I, I think it would be all right. And I so, don't think he's he's going to we don't have any money. So he's not no. getting out of us. <laughs> right. A year from now, when Asa La Visa baby really takes off, it'll be a different conversation. We might have five hundred million dollars in bear bonds right now. We don't have right. any. Right, exactly. So, so we're going to meet Hans. First consultation that's going to take place in Los Angeles. You're going to fly to L.A. with me. Yep. We're, we're going to meet Hans in a uh, public place. And I think we're going to have to dress really well because Hans has a knack for fashion. So I think we're going we're gonna to go out probably to Rodeo and, you know, get some nice, nice, very well-fitting suits. Sounds good. So when we talk to Hans and we do our consultation with him, we're going to have to have a heart-to-heart. Okay, this is some serious stuff. You know, besides the criminal conspiracy theory stuff and the, the weapons charges that he probably would have brought, you know, been brought under for, if Hans is in the U.S. via a fake passport that led to the visa waiver program entry, or if he entered the U.S. without inspection, it's going to have serious consequences on any legal future for Hans in the U.S. Agreed? Agreed. Agreed. And and. And if we are indeed meeting him in, in L.A., however he came in, as you point out, the damage is done. And practically, there's almost nothing that can be done. But ethically, our, our advice can, you know, we, we're not really allowed to assist him in this no. sort of ongoing thing. So our advice is going to be very, very limited, if anything, really, for him at this point. We are very by the book lawyers. We have a sacred duty to uphold the laws of the Constitution of the United States. And we are not going to help Hans Gruber, no matter how many suits he wants to offer us with any illegal, you know, activities. So I think what we have to tell Hans is, Hans, Bubi, we're going to have to say to him, there is no pathway to changing legal status for you while you're in the U.S. in an unauthorized status. So I think what I would tell Hans is that the best advice for you, Hans, is to voluntarily depart the U.S. before you're caught by the authorities and before you're placed into court proceedings. Rod, what are some of the benefits if he was to voluntarily depart the United States before he got put into court proceedings? So, you know, given the likelihood of his accruing unlawful presence, right, the best advice for Hans is to go ahead and go. If he does, if he has accrued more than 180 days in the United States, but less than one year of unlawful presence, he'd be barred from returning to the U.S. or applying for any status at all for three years. And just to, to make things clear, unlawful presence means you're in the United States without legal visa status, correct? That is correct. Right. So yes. when we say unlawful presence, we're talking about being in the United States in what's known as an illegal status. Correct. Correct. If he does depart and he's spent one year of, of unlawful presence in the United States, then he would be barred for at least 10 years. Now, you know, granted, 
I think that even with those two things in, in place, those two set years of the three and the 10 year bars, depending on how long you've been in the United States, there's still no guarantee that he would be able to legally return to the U.S. anyway, even after if he were subject to one of those bars, even after waiting that period, he's no longer eligible for visa waiver status. Any violation of the visa waiver status results in ineligibility. And then based on his, these previous transgressions, they are still going to be taken into account no matter what. Even right. if you were eligible to apply again, these would have to be disclosed and they would still be taken into account by, by a future consular officer. For example, you know, if we give Hans the advice to depart the United States voluntarily and let's say, you know, that he waits the three years or the 10 years, that doesn't mean that he's going to get back to the United States for the serious things that he has done in the past for his criminal behavior. I think it might be very difficult for Hans to get back to the United States ever again. So we have to tell Hans, listen, Hans, you might not be able to get back to the United States ever again in a legal capacity if you voluntarily depart the United States. Now, we also have to tell Hans that if he chooses to remain in the U.S. without legal status, we're not going to tell him to do that. That's illegal. We're not going to tell him to do that. But we're going to say to him, look, if you stay in the United States illegally without status, you may be captured, you may be detained, and you may be placed into court proceedings, and you may be removed from the United States. And Hans, if you're removed from the United States, you may be permanently barred from ever returning to the U.S. again. There is something called a waiver. He would most likely need a waiver in order to ever return to the U.S. in a legal capacity in the future. And depending upon the circumstances of his removal, it may be impossible to get such a waiver. So the consultation is, Hans, the best advice for you is to get out of the United States before you start to accrue unlawful presence. Maybe in the future, if you want to come back and visit Madame Tussauds or go to the Statue of Liberty, then you could try again in the future. But it might be a significant amount of time before you can come back to the United States, if ever again. If ever again, agreed. And I think probably that the, the voluntary departure, I think, is probably the route that he would take. Because, you know, as you know, they were just here for the robbery. And their plan was, in a short period of time, to be sitting on a beach somewhere earning 20%. So uh, I presume that would be outside <laughs> the United States. So I, mean, I don't think... They're uh, planning to stay along anyway, but definitely the warning, as you pointed out, Shai, definitely that that he he may find himself never setting foot on U.S. soil again. Man, can you imagine earning twenty percent on six hundred forty million dollars in negotiable I, bear bonds on a beach? Yeah, however that's done, that sounds fantastic. I mean, illegally, legally, it just sounds good. I don't want yeah. people to do it illegally, but if you could find a way to do that legally, wow, that's the American dream. <laughs> take, take your money and leave the U.S. and earn 20%. So I think that the overall immigration takeaway here is that Hans Gruber was probably in the United States due to a fake passport through the visa waiver program. And uh, in a consultation, we would tell Hans, whatever you do, don't commit the criminal atrocities at the Nakatomi Tower you're thinking of. Leave the United States. <laughs> Get your life back together in Germany. Go through some therapy, some counseling, de-radicalize yourself. And maybe in the future, down the line, you'll come back to the United States and open a men's warehouse. Sure. Yeah, that's a step down, I think, from his, from his ultimate dream. <laughs> but, but yeah. One step at a time. Right. Yeah. Well, that was a, a fun conversation. I really enjoyed talking about Hans Gruber. Let's get into some overall takeaways from the movie. What say you? Sure. I'm going to throw this takeaway out there, and I, I want your honest reaction. I think this yeah. movie is actually a love story between John McClane and Al Powell. 
So, you know, Shai, it's interesting you say that. I know we both watched in preparing for this conversation and something that, that I highly recommend to everybody. Uh, on Netflix, there's a, a documentary series called The Movies That Made Us. And they deal with a, a number of films, Die Hard being one of them. And in there, there is a, in, in that documentary, there is a, an interview with Bonnie Bedelia, who plays Holly. And she talks about this exact thing where she says at the end of the movie, they are finally reunited. Holly and John are, they make their way out of the building. And the first thing that happens is that John just sort of walks away from Holly and gives, he sees Al and they recognize each other immediately and they, they share a big hug. And that's really the big reunification moment of the film. It says, and, it's, it's as if Cupid struck both of them with an arrow. <laughs> As if maybe this should have been a Valentine's Day movie. Perhaps, perhaps it should have. But yeah, that Netflix uh, show, the movies that made us fantastic. Uh, I highly recommend it to anybody out there. A second takeaway is that this is something that doesn't sit well with me. Ready? Holly and sure. John were witnesses to and involved in an international criminal and hostage situation. John had to kill people. Okay. John suffered multiple lacerations, probable concussions, and was shot in the shoulder. But at the end of the movie, John and Holly, they don't have to give statements to the LAPD. They don't have to talk to the FBI, nor do they have to go to the hospital for trauma. They are just allowed to get in the limousine with Argyle and they drive off. Yeah, I don't know they where just, they're going. They just go. Yeah, presumably they're going to Holly's house. I don't know. But yeah, I agree with you completely. Uh, and, you know, my, bear in mind, he's a New York City cop. He's not even an LAPD cop. I mean, that's always the joke is that, you know, Whenever something like this happens, there's a huge amount of paperwork to be done. And I imagine it's a lot more complicated because he's from out of town. I so, think they would want a witness statement right away. Would, absolutely. And I think they'd probably want to sit him down and have a long conversation with him. Hollywood yeah, should have Hollywood should have consulted with us when they when they wrote this part of the movie. Absolutely, yeah. The the, the young children that we were at the time. <laughs> the, the debrief of John McClain after after the situation. <laughs> I have a question for you, Rod. Uh, the, sure. lim the limousine driver, Argyle, okay, who picks up John from the airport mm -hmm. and he takes yeah. him to the, the holiday party at Nakatomi Tower. What in the world was Argyle doing during several hours? Yeah, it's interesting. So when, when he picks up John, he says, hey, do you have a place to stay? And he says, no, I'm kind of figuring it out. You know, like we pointed out, he didn't have a plan when he got there. And he, so Argyle tells him, well, you know, Talk to your wife, see how it works. If it looks good, then I'll take, I'll bring your bags in for you. If no good, then I'll get you into a hotel somewhere. This, I, I did it just a very rudimentary time check on this, right? We find out when he arrives, around the time he arrives at the party, it's approximately five or 5.30, right? And we know this because Holly is telling her assistant, quit, go to the party. You make me feel like I'm, you know, Ebenezer Scrooge. So we know that she says it's, I think it's five or 5.30. Then, you know, when we're, we're introduced to the journalist, Richard Thornburg, they are just going on for the 10 p.m. news broadcast, right? Argyle still has no idea what's going on. So this is ne <laughs> nearly five hours. Five he's hours. In this, he's been sitting in the garage. And then he learns about everything that's going on when Thornburg <laughs> goes live, presumably at 11. So we're taking five, five so six hours. So what yeah, was he sitting. doing? This uh, is 1988. Know. There's no social yeah. media. There's no internet. What is he doing in a limousine in a garage for five and a half hours by himself? We see he's drinking. We see yep. he's on the telephone. How how long can that entertain you? He does talk about the you know the advantages to being in a limo. He had CDs, CDs. <laughs> they had a VHS, you know, they, there's stuff to do, but yeah, I, I, why he just continues, he's waiting for John to call back 
to say whether or not he needs. Uh, and it's Christmas you know, Eve. It's, and it's Christmas, Christmas Eve. Eve. It's Christmas Eve, and he's a limo driver. Presumably, he's got another pickup. Uh, you it know, is, it's it's a huge question mark. Every time we do one of these episodes, we we think about a spinoff movie. I think our guy all deserves a spinoff movie. You just do the whole movie just, with him just, in the garage. Just him in the garage for five hours. I would like to see what he's doing with that teddy bear sitting next to him for five hours. That's a that's a long movie. <laughs> oh man, um, Argyle, we would love to talk to Argyle, Rod. As somebody who lives in New York City. And I myself is a, am a New York City native. Where do we think in New York City John McClane lived? So, you know, I, I don't know if this is actually the case, but my understanding is that police officers and firefighters are required to live in the five boroughs. But New York City police officers and firefighters, I may be wrong about that. That's not, you know, this is far outside of my area of expertise. But assuming he does live in New York City, I, I would guess, you know, stereotypically, I think the rule holds that many police live in Staten Island. That um, is a stereotype. That certainly so, is a stereotype. So that's the first place, I guess. I mean, he certainly is not, you know, he's not a Brooklyn brownstoner. Not a Manhattan um, guy either. He's got two he children doesn't seem to me a manhattan guy so uh, uh you know i i would probably maybe go with the staten island but that's just i, I have a take i i think that john mcclain is possibly like a neighborhood queens kind of guy i could totally see him being in woodside sunnyside even a middle village i, I see yeah. queens is an area where you could have a house you could have a yard so i, I see him as like a queens neighborhood kind of guy but staten island that's that's an option too yeah. Yeah. I mean, Queen, Queens is certainly a possibility, especially those neighborhoods that you point out. They, they would be, you know, they seem family they, friendly. They, yeah. Family friendly. And, and I think he'd be it's not filled with hipsters. No, you know, the stuff that we he's not a John, hipster. John's that not would a hipster. John. That would yeah. annoy John. Probably that might, you know, be, might, might be the neighborhood for him. I agree. I agree. But I, I think the most important lesson of all from Die Hard is, ladies and gentlemen, always wear your shoes at the holiday party. You never know when a terrorist group is going to come in and, and make you go on the run. So make sure those shoes are on. I will never take mine off. That's the lesson. That's the lesson we've all learned. For all the foreign nationals out there, the final lessons are don't use a fake ID to come to the U.S. Don't enter without inspection. Whatever you do, don't take hostages, especially not on a holiday eve. If you're going to take hostages, do it on a day that's not important. But if it's on, on Christ- an off day, on an off day, yeah. don't do it on don't do it on Christmas Eve. It's just bad form, bad form all around. If you have not done so already, please subscribe to the podcast and rate us. We love the reviews. You can find us on all the major podcast streaming platforms. We're on Apple, Spotify, Stitcher, Google, Amazon, everything. We have an email address. And I just want to say that I'm really impressed by all the fan mail we've been receiving. Yeah, um, we're, we're very happy to be hearing from people. We're, we're getting emails from, from people giving us ideas of what podcasts they want to hear, what episodes, uh, just giving us all kinds of compliments. Our, our boss was afraid we'd get hate mail. I'm happy to say we've received none so far. Rod, what's, what's that email address? That email address is astalaviza at gibney.com. Thanks. And it's spelled exactly how it sounds. Yep. Yeah. And um, again, we're getting a lot of feedback, tremendous feedback. So, you know, keep it up. All the yeah, fans keep it out coming. there. Next time, we're going to do something a little bit different. Rod, I think you can back me up here, but we've been receiving a lot of questions from listeners about the basics of immigration. What's yep. a green card? Why would somebody want a green card? What's the difference between a a citizen and a green card holder, why would exactly. somebody need a visa? 
It's time for some basics, I think. These are all questions you one as, once asked when you were a novice. Sometimes still ask them today. You do. Um, <laughs> so, so this will be helpful for you. So what we're going to do is sort of a fun take on an immigration 101. Mm-hmm. But in the spirit of this podcast, we're going to do it through the prism of fictitious characters in the 1950s television show classic, I Love Lucy. And Rod, I think we are all going to find out that you have a lot more in common with Ricky Ricardo than many people know. That's right. And it's more than just playing the conga drums. Isn't that right, Rod? Yes, much, much more. (laughs) Yeah, we'll get into all that in our our Immigration 101. Yeah. So, you know, we had a really good time. Um, I really enjoyed, Rod, talking with you about one of my favorite characters and one of my favorite movies of all time. This was a lot of fun. Great time, Shy. Until next time. Hasta la vista, baby. See you next time.